where our goal is to inform and educate our listeners on matters related to finance, legal, insurance, accounting, and other interests that are of personal and business. The expert network team consists of Carl Frank of ANI Financial, Mike Miller of Miller and Associates CPAs, Jeff Cromendike of Security First Insurance. Together, our independent team combines our expertise to provide you insights and solutions, some straightforward, some profound. We hope you enjoy the information contained in today's podcast and find it useful. If you'd like to learn more or desire to meet with any of the Expert Network team members in person, you can contact us at info at expertnetworkteam.com. That's I-N-F-O. And we encourage you to take advantage of a free consultation with any of our team members. Just mention this podcast when you schedule your Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Carl Frank with ANI Financial Services, and with me today, I've got Nathan Merrill with Goodspeed and Merrill. Hello, Nate. Hello there. And we've got John Sauer also with Goodspeed and Merrill. John's uh, Goodspeed. It's a great law firm. It's a great law firm, and John is a great lawyer with employment law. How are you, John? One of our best. I'm doing great. So thank you so much for having me again. I'm so glad to see you again. And we're excited to talk about enforcing non-competes. So uh, in our recent podcast, we discussed uh, the, the breaking new, news. The breaking news about new law changes for Colorado employers and 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 employees, and uh, the non compete rules got a lot weaker for the employer and a lot stronger for labor. And today, we're going to talk about how to enforce that and, and what enforcement looks like from an employer's point of view. Did I summarize that pretty well? I, I think so. And I, just to recap, I don't know that we would that we concluded they necessarily got weaker, but they got more technical or more um, specific. Yeah, you have to have technical compliance. Yeah. So, so taking that technical compliance further, I think we can rule out technical non-compliance. If you don't have a compliant non-compete, there's not going to be any point. What value? Is it worth anything more than the paper it's printed on at that point, John? So this is kind of when you get back to the criminal penalties issue. So you know there's obviously professional rules of conduct that you can't threaten criminal sanctions against another attorney. But um, I have seen it occur where an employer tries to enforce a non-compete, and in response to that, they get a notification from the employee's attorney that uh, the non-compete is unenforceable, and your efforts to enforce it would be a violation of you know, Sometimes that's very 18. subjective, though, and they're just bloviating, correct? Exactly, but there's, there's But now with these more technical requirements, if you have a facially non-compliant situation where there's no factual question, they did not initial the notice page, yeah. you're saying that as an attorney you, you would be, I don't know if remiss is the right way or whatever the word is to say you should not advance that down the field you should not if you if you know that it's not compliant you should not try to enforce it that's correct okay so it isn't worth if it's non-compliant agreement now there's really no strategy to try to bend the will of the employee you just simply have a worthless piece of paper that tool in your toolbox is no longer there okay right? so there's other ways to go after an employee well said counsel okay. <laughs> <laughs> Counselor. Um, so let's now move on to where you have something that at least appears on its face to be valid 
or is well let's start there so uh i think we all know that in the practice of law not everything is definite um well why don't we talk about kind of the initial steps of evaluating whether someone might consider enforcing or have an enforceable agreement so there's always a concern about what the tenor of the situation is, right? Is this an emergency? Have they taken the crown jewels and you need to shut this down immediately? Um, or is this, you know, they've got in their Rolodex a couple of your clients and you're concerned that they may call them. Uh, you need to send a demand letter soon, but it's not, you know, set the world on fire, shut it down. So from my perspective, starting with the presumption that we've done an evaluation of the enforceability of the agreement, we do a decision. We kind of do a decision tree, right? About what are our options here? What? How is the employee going to respond to this situation? Are they going to take a demand letter seriously, and you know, and stop, stop, or do we actually need to go Send get a TRO? Right. Uh, the nuclear bomb in these types of cases is uh, you file a TRO, which is a temporary restraining order. You also typically sue the. Um, employer that's hired this person away okay um so that they because more likely than not they're not only in receipt of misappropriated trade secrets they're probably aware of the non-compete um and so may have been acting that, in cahoots with the is employee. that a such thing as aiding and embedding a breach of contract or is that it's effectively a tortious interference okay. gotcha claim. gotcha okay what does that mean so a tortious interference with contract claim is when so in our scenario, the the new employer, where the employee the employee that's leaving is taking the crown jewels, they're taking the crown jewels over to the the new employer. The new employer, if they have notice and knowledge of the non compete and notice of knowledge of these trade secrets, I mean, there's several types of claims you can bring, but the primary one is tortious interference with contract because they're aware of the agreement that you have with the employee not to go compete against them. Got it. So that requires. Um, that you prove that the new employer knows about the contract? Yes. Or knows that they're getting protected information. Uh, like the, oftentimes or occasionally the person might be being hired specifically because they have access to that information. Got it. And those cases are the fastest moving cases in litigation. Oh. Um, so for a TRO, you typically... They talk about TRO and kind of what's involved there. So... A temporary restraining order is an emergency, a request for an emergency order from the court to issue basically a protective order to prevent particular activities from occurring. Under certain circumstances, a court will issue a TRO ex parte, which is in litigation somewhat unheard of. Like I can't, in my litigation cases, I can't just call up the judge and talk to the judge unless the other party is there. I can't do that. That mm -hmm. would be an improper ex parte communication. But under some circumstances, a court will enter an order preventing someone from doing something or engaging in a particular activity. Aren't there like thresholds you have to meet, like irreparable harm or what are those? So you have to hit irreparable harm. You have to hit, um, you have to explain the nature of the emergency. Most of the time you have to be able to prove that you gave the other side notice. Um, you have to prove that the uh, basis for the request is to preserve the status quo effectively. And no other available effective remedy or something yeah, like no that. Yeah, no other available remedies at law. Yeah. Boy, that that digs way back. See, I'm a tax attorney. I don't do any of this stuff. That was like first-year law school. Are you out. showing off? No, I'm just surprised. I'm patting myself on my back for You're myself. Getting, uh, 
good feelings. Well, I've, I've, I've actually been through a couple of TROs, but okay. but so you have to you get a hearing within three days typically. Yeah, and that's fast, and they're, they're and how long do they last usually before you have to have a full hearing? The TRO lasts fourteen days. Okay, and then you did you already say that? No. Okay, you try to get a preliminary injunction typically with the TRO. Preliminary injunction is the same order, but it lasts through the pendency of the case. Got it. So, so in that way, it's similar to a criminal TRO, temporary restraining order against somebody. If there were a, you know, an abuse situation where yeah, was, family law, you see him frequently. Right. I was thinking family law or any situation really. Yeah, where I think Johnny might. Depp had a TRO against Amber Heard. Amber Heard. Well, there you go. Johnny Depp made TROs famous. Famous Amos. What? Is that breaking news? Yeah, no, that's not breaking news. I wouldn't even be able to tell you anything about that. Those were f- fun to watch, though. So countercultural. Um, okay, so y- y- now you're past the TRO. What, what's the next part of this enforcement process? So let's talk about the TRO, how this works. So you have to file the TRO document is you know somewhere between 10 and 20 pages of you laying out to the court why this TRO needs to be issued. You're setting the case up for a preliminary injunction. One of the other things you have to argue is uh, likelihood of success on the merits. So the court would actually take an, make an evaluation, make a determination based on a TRO outcome that you have a, a strong likelihood of success on the merits. If you get a TRO in one of these cases, you're, the other side is immediately want to talk to you about settlement because you're going to win. And, and, and win. just to reiterate, these are the crisis cases. The only case you'd bring, bring for a TRO is where, like, you call it the crown jewels or something like that, where your business will be irreparably and irreversibly harmed yeah. by exploitation of whatever the the situation is. Yeah. So so that's not every case. In terms of, like, how often you get involved in, in non-competes, how often, you know, out of 100 cases, how many would be TRO-type cases? So I work on a non-compete issue every single day i probably work on 10 different non-competes across a week i mean it's a lot of it's this is a big piece of my practice a big piece of every employment especially as the workforce shrinks and shrinks and shrinks is getting access to people who know how to do things is critical exactly and and you really want to hang on to your people and this becomes a maybe a stick more than a carrot right um it doesn't. The TRO doesn't come up very regularly because uh, the, it's mean, an frankly, extraordinary remedy. It's an extraordinary remedy, and frankly, it's not. It's not that common that somebody will just take the crown jewels. Because wouldn't wouldn't a judge frequently or occasionally say you have damages? I mean, it would really have to put you out of business for it to rise to level of TRO. Otherwise, the judge would just say, just recover your damages and you'd be fine, right? Yeah. Exactly, and yeah, I mean, the irreparable harm is you can no longer continue. It's like it's not damages; it's dam it's damages forever. They're incalculable, right. respectively. So it seems pretty rare, less likely to go the TRO route. It's rare. I mean, it's fun as an attorney because it's like you suddenly it's quick, yeah. dramatic, and you you're done. I feel and like it's the decisive. Wild West. It's very yeah. decisive. decisive. So, so I mean, you know, John is much more deliberate than me. I like it in technology. I mean, you know, famously, at least in my industry recently, and a lot of people are leaving Tesla to go to other companies. And so they're not going to be bringing, you know, the Tesla battery with them, which might be that company's biggest, you know, edge over their competitors. But if they go to Apple and they start up a car that works 
a lot like a Tesla. It seems like they're going to be bringing a lot of the the you know confidential information. I can only imagine that you know the lawyers working for Tesla are going to be doing something to Apple. What does that look like? So you can have one company sue another company, and I mean it's effectively misappropriation of trade secrets. It's the same claim you bring against the employee that took the crown jewels, and you sue them and. This is when things get, I think, even more interesting from my perspective as an attorney because you get to work with some really interesting experts. I work with expert opinions, uh, people that provide expert opinions and research and all that stuff regularly in litigation matters, but the computer forensic examiners are hmm. uh, somewhat incredible what they can pull out. And so, for instance, sometimes it's very hard to prove affirmatively that the trade seek, based on what we can do with our, you know, weak understanding of Outlook or whatever to see where the emails went or what was taken. I mean, a computer forensic examiner can see when a USB drive was plugged into a computer. It can identify um, different points in time as to when files moved to different folders, what was taken. So one of these cases I had, um, we started with believing that the person had taken the crown jewels. We got a, comp a computer forensic examiner to find out that they didn't just take the crown jewels. They took everything. They took a lot of stuff that they didn't even need. And um, that was all through the efforts of Computer Forensic Examiner. Uh, and at that point, it was, we got that person on the stand to testify about what had happened. It was it was very easy to win that case in a lot of ways because we had the right wow. evidence. So right. It's not just, sometimes it's hard to prove, but you know, I'm sure Tesla probably have 30 or 40 computers. Uh, yeah, they're going to have some brilliant men and women to do that job for them. Yeah. So right. what are some other... So if you don't have a, a crisis situation, you mentioned, you know, if you get a TRO, you're using talking settlement pretty quickly. What does a, a non-TRO route usually look like in terms of the back and forth? So the typical initiation is a demand letter, um, and I'll send demand letters. Sometimes I'll send a demand letter with a draft complaint, um, which is what you'd file in court if things didn't work. Um, to, it, frankly, it's honestly a good thing when the employee hires an attorney most of the time um, because the attorney understands the gravity of the situation much better than the employee does. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from the demand letter stage, what you're doing is you're laying out all the facts. Some of, you're not, telling, you're not showing your whole hand, obviously, but you're laying out the facts as to what you know they took. And then you work through, either with the employee or with the attorney on the other side, typically a, a settlement agreement that includes um, return or destruction of what's been taken. It, there's always uh, this issue of trust but verify, and that always becomes a problem with these types of cases because especially if you're in a situation where the, the employer is, is convinced that the employee took something and they don't have it anymore, it's been destroyed, you can't necessarily say that's been returned or destroyed. You get them to sign an affidavit to the effect that it has been destroyed, and then you have contractual damages or claims against them if they, you find out that they later have it or didn't destroy it. But under those circumstances, it's quite rare, I think, to hire like a computer examiner to determine that the, the documents have been destroyed. So in the emergency situation, when you do have the crown jewels, 100% if you're going to enter into settlement, you say, okay, we're hiring a third-party computer examiner. They are going to examine all of your devices to ensure that those, those files that you stole are gone. But on the lower level, you have to make kind of an educated decision as to whether this is 
They could have other devices or, yeah, Yeah. their girlfriend could have a device. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how far do you go on those affidavits? Like, neither you nor anyone in your immediate family nor anyone who you had drinks with last Friday or how, how broad do you have them attest that no one in their control or sphere of influence has the information? Yeah, I think it's a good idea to have them broad, but you obviously you kind of get lengthy and it gets a little overzealous. Right. But um, one of the dis- one of the things that can come up in these cases, and this is another thing to check the box when you're doing the initial client contact about these types of things, is uh, and this is something that I've seen other lawyers get burned on. I've it's come up in my cases, unfortunately, but you send the demand letter and what comes back is, okay, fine, but you didn't pay me out my vacation leave, so we're going to file a wage complaint. I know that you discriminated against me because of these seven reasons. Make sure you've got all your ducks in a row. <laughs> it's not just, you know, before you throw the bomb, you better know that you're bulletproof. So, right. That's um, good. That's a good saying. Do you, do you have that trademark? No, not yet. <laughs> what was it again for our listening audience? Before you throw the bomb, you better know you're bulletproof. Nice. So... Um, yeah, it's litigation is sometimes knockdown, drag out, boxing, and you want to win. How long does a typical path go? How long does it take before an employer who begins this can expect to see an answer? Um, it's somewhat in my control as an attorney, and somewhat not in my control because. I recently had a case that it was a silly settlement agreement and it took three months for some reason. I mm. think that the other attorney was working an hour a week or something. I mean, it just never right. came back to me. Right. And But I've had these things. I got one I'm got, that I'm wrapping up right now, you know, two weeks. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so you can expect a fairly quick resolution. Even three months seems reasonable from, a, from my point of view, dealing with, you know, dealing with Nate. things can take a while it's the law i don't know anything right i mean things take a while so but even a three month seems pretty quick yeah yeah, that's from the settlement perspective and the emergency things it can be even faster faster the two weeks so you can have i mean if you have a hearing in three days you show up you put on your evidence the judge will read the order from the from the bench you win and then you can have you, you you have you have an order protecting you and then you're immediately in is there, negotiations is there a difference between for effectively on timing or anything after this for a non-solicitation of clients versus non-compete working for a competitor on how long employers can expect to have to litigate these things on a typical path? Is there any difference between the type of case? Um, I think the thing that dictates the length of a case more than anything is the evidence. Right? Is it? And how much evidence you need to gather. So you have to go, the longest part of a case is the discovery phase. And so if you need a lot of evidence, you're going to tell the judge at the front end, we need, you know, we need 20 depositions. We need, you know, three experts. You know, we think that uh, we've got, we're going to need expanded written discovery requests, whatever. And that can turn a case into a two or three year ordeal. Okay, that's the type of thing. So it really doesn't matter the type of case. Because, I mean, the evidence for a non-solicitation seems pretty straightforward. You know, the ex-employee either did or didn't contact or take, a, you know, a, an employee or a, or a client. 
And there's, I mean, there's parts of these conversations with em employers that want to enforce these that you really have to consider as to how litigation is going to play out, right? So if you have, say your employee took your, your, your the employee leaves, they, they try to take your biggest client, the, you know, this person you've worked your entire career to originate, to right. you know, bring in, you're working with them, and now suddenly you're you're hiring an attorney to go depose your biggest client to figure out what their communications were with your employee that took off. That might make your biggest client quite uncomfortable. Yeah, and never work with you again. I was going to say, is with the bomb throwing and bulletproofing, is there still a situation where even if you win, you lose, and that, that could be it, it sounds like. Are there other... Um, tar pits that that might be unsuspectingly so one thing i get concerned about uh, of course is that there's a big movement towards having a positive work culture and if you're known to go after your employees you're setting a precedent and whether that's a good precedent or a bad precedent is dependent upon you know a lot of other factors but you know, I don't want to. I, as an employee, I would not want to necessarily work for an employer that I'm going to leave and then get sued out of existence. Right. And the damages. I mean, we're talking about corporate level damages that these employees could cause. So you're talking about financial ruin potentially for the employee right. if you if you Multiple put the pedal to the metal. Because, yeah. That's there's true. a yeah. There's a reputational risk, isn't there? Okay. So let me flip the table. And and now I'm a, an employer who's hiring somebody. And uh, and I get a letter from their former employer. Holy cow! Now what do I do? Right? Am I like, do I let this person go? How how much at risk am I if they, and if they're going to start, especially if they're going to use some of these stronger language um, threats? I, I'm like, whoa! What did I just get myself into? So I have employers ask me constantly: Should I be asking employees? Uh, about whether they have a non-compete or not. And ignorance is a defense in this situation. No, I didn't know they had a non-compete. You, you get them. But the, the reality is... To discover. The reality is, is if you do not no inquiry and the other side finds out that you have trade secrets or other protected information in your possession as a result of hiring this person, you're still wide open to a bunch of other types of litigation. And you're better off to be in a position of knowing rather than trying to plead ignorance and look like the good guy. Um, so under those circumstances, you should know on the front end if you're, you're getting good legal advice. And if you get the letter from the employer, you've hired this person knowing that they have a non-compete, um, hopefully you've got that non-compete review to determine whether it's enforceable or not. If it's not enforceable, you send the nasty letter back saying, go pound sand. If it is enforceable, um, that's when you probably need to call an employment attorney to start figuring out, how do I make sure to limit my exposure on this? Because there's, but there is pretty significant potential liability. One thing that happens a lot in these spaces, so there are industries that non-competes are everywhere. Um, I can't be too specific without revealing some confidences, but there are industries where you know the primary people that do the work for the business are covered by a non-compete. And the players in those industries know how to navigate those kinds of conversations. One of the things that uh, some employers will do, especially when these are highly skilled, highly trained people that are very difficult to replace otherwise, is they'll enter into buyout negotiations. and. 
you have to be very adept at planning what's your you know what's your weight what's your labor cost on this because uh, effectively one of the strategies is to negotiate a buyout for this person and in addition to that you tie the employee in with your own non-compete with your own buyout provision so that you get paid when they leave and then you may also be in a situation where if they leave within a particular period of time say two years they have to pay you back whatever portion of buyout was or on some kind of graduated level um, and that that negotiation it, it's not very artful it's just here's the price pay it most of the time <laughs> yeah that makes sense to me so right i mean that would be a logical thing to do in that example i brought you earlier with tesla and apple you know that's what's going down mm -hmm. for key personnel who are making the news yeah but i guess the calculation is you pay up front what your defense costs would be on in the alternative essentially or that's what you're you're weighing in the balances right i think maybe I, I think maybe one thing that's important to know here is that the TRO order that an employer would get would include a direction that the employee sees all competitive activities, which means that the employer that's now hired them away is restricted from continuing to employ that person. So they automatically are going to lose their job. And under those circumstances, it's not just a money and calculus decision. It's how disruptive is this going to be if I try to bring this person in knowing they have a non-compete and suddenly our operations could be upside down because we have a, a court order to stop doing what we're doing. That, that could be a major problem. Uh, yeah. In the immortal words of Rodney King, why can't we just all get along? Um, you know, as I think about what we've been talking about today, it kind of brings into context what we were talking about in the last podcast with John, which is the, the heightened... Uh, you know, or, or the protective nature that this this new statute has towards employees, because it it it's clear, you know, from this conversation today that this could be devastating to individuals if they aren't protected at some level. If they don't have the negotiating or bargaining power to protect themselves, they could find themselves having to move out of an industry they've spent their life training to be productive in. Yeah, I mean, read what you are going to sign, and make sure that what you are having other people sign is compliant. I mean, from an employment litigation defense perspective, the best advice I can give to employers is if you can look reasonable, we can win the case. If we can't make you look reasonable, we can't win the case. And the truth is, is if you have a non-compete that bars someone from basically earning a living for 10 years or something, and the one thing that they can do with that's been making them money, you look like a, a complete jerk. So I think on some level, maybe there's an effort here to dissuade people from using non-competes to foster more competition. I think maybe some of the concerns that you're raising about, I'm not going to show you the secret sauce because I'm not sure if my non-competes in, in mm -hmm. order may stifle innovation. I think there's, I think there's some, I, I believe that on some level as well. Yeah. And I suspect that jury trials are waived in nearly every one of these situations. Yes. Yeah, so there's, yeah. Uh, you would want to waive a jury trial, right, from the employer's perspective. Right. Very often you do arbitration. Oh, good point. I've seen a lot of employers move away from arbitration, and frankly, I'm not a huge fan of arbitration. W one thing that's important about arbitration is you can't get 
injunctive relief through an arbiter. Mm -hmm. Only injunctive relief can be issued through a court. So you may end up in you may end up in court trying to prove your case publicly anyhow if you're trying to get a TRO. So and arbitration can be expensive. And I've had great arbiters. I've had some arbiters that miss the mark, and I've had more often experiences where the arbiters just doesn't want to pick a side, and you get nothing. They and that nothing. doesn't help at all. Yeah, you just that doesn't help anybody. They were once attorneys who worked one hour a week. <laughs> uh, that was that was a, that was an industry thing. Sorry. <clears throat> I kind of want to be one of those people only working one hour a week, so sign me up. Yeah, there you go. You I have a non-compete with my own company, mediator. though. It might be a real problem for me to <laughs> to go work for those law firms. John, this is great. Any closing thoughts for us? No, I've really enjoyed talking about these issues. I think they're important to understand kind of what the legislature is doing with these important uh, things, especially when you're trying to manage high-level employees and protecting your business. So I'm happy to help in any way I can. Very good. It's a huge deal for uh, professional services. Absolutely. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Create a beautiful day. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed the information we shared. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with someone else and join us next time. If you want to meet with a member of the team, please contact us at info at expertnetworkteam.com. That's info at expertnetworkteam.com. If you have special topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to us and let us know at the same email address. Again, that's info at expertnetworkteam.com. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We want to remind you that listening to this podcast does not establish a client professional relationship with any of the firms represented, nor does it constitute legal, investment, or accounting advice, and the views are those of the professionals only. Investment advisory services may be provided through ANI Financial Services, and securities may be provided through Genios Wealth Management.